it is college football season. And for that, I get a lot of people who are excited and they're amening college football season. Maybe your team is doing well. Maybe you're not. But I, too, was super pumped about college football season. But not because I'm a college football fan. Because college football season beginning means that basketball season's about to begin. And so college football season, I was ready for it, and now we are in basketball season. My favorite team is 5-1. and one. We're doing well, for those of you who are concerned. And so if you see me out and about, it won't be uncommon for you to see me wearing a, a Golden State hat. Golden State's my favorite uh, team, and I'll, I'll wear a Golden State hat. But the reason I wear my hat isn't to tell the world how much I love Golden State basketball. It's not even to rub, rub it in the faces of those who don't like Golden State that my team is better than theirs. It's not even for that reason. I wear my Golden State hat because of the conversations it starts. So whenever I have Golden State, and, or any hat, but the Golden State hat in particular, and I'm in Sam's or in a gas station or, or at Walmart, wherever, and another basketball fan is there, especially during the playoffs, that basketball fan will inevitably make his way over to me to make a joke or to poke me about a loss, which happens rarely, um, or, or, or start a conversation of some sort about basketball because we have a common interest. And we see that same thing happen over and over throughout all different realms of life. With my basketball hat, I'll, I'll, this person will come up to me oftentimes from a different background, different socioeconomic status, maybe different culture, different uh, ethnicity, race, whatever, it doesn't matter. That commonality immediately starts a friendship. And we might stand there for 15 minutes talking about basketball and leave having made a friend that we probably still don't know one another's names. But that was enough to draw us together. And, and that's not limited to basketball. Think about any interest that you have especially if it's kind of a, a niche thing, if you find someone else who really enjoys doing whatever that thing is, you're going to be bonded immediately. And it even happens with, with professions. If you get two firemen and they're standing in, in a line side by side or even two different lines, and one of them doesn't have anything that distinguishes him as a fireman and the other one has a, a T-shirt or a hat on or something like that, Nine times out of ten, the one who isn't wearing anything fireman-related is going to look over to the other one and say, hey, man, I, I'm a fireman at such and such place. How long have you been a fireman? And they're going to start that conversation because of the commonality that they have. Immediately, these two people who would have never spoken to one another, who might have nothing else in common, are drawn to one another, and, and immediately they become friends. They like each other because of that. If you want to, you can go ahead and turn to 1 John 5. We're going to read the first five verses. But I, as you're turning there, I want you to consider the question. If something as trivial as basketball or our occupation can draw us immediately to have such an affinity for people who otherwise we have nothing in common, if something that trivial can do that, how much more should a shared, indwelling Holy Spirit draw us toward one another, to, into, into a deep 
love and affection for one another. If, if something like an occupation can do it, how much more should the fact that we all here at Harvest Church, everyone who has put their faith in Jesus, we share the gift of salvation that has been given to us. How much more should that draw us into something so much deeper than friendship or just lighthearted liking of one another? We should love one another because of that. And I think we're going to see John talk about that today. So I'm going to read the first five verses, and then, then we'll talk about them. Starting in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Today's sermon is just going to flow through the text. Uh, we're going to look at the first three verses. We're going to see uh, what John is trying to communicate. And then we're going to look at the next two verses, verses 4 and 5, that seem a little bit disjointed, like they don't really follow the same pattern of thought. We're going to consider what was it that John was trying to say to, in those verses, and then how do they relate to the first three verses. The first thought in verse 1 is pretty intuitive to most Christians. It, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And most Christians, if you've ever heard John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. If you've heard that verse, then the first, the first idea in 1 John 5.1 is pretty familiar. What does it mean to have eternal life except to be born of God? That's what it means. But the second clause isn't quite as intuitive to us. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. In an American individualistic society, that rubs, rubs us the wrong way a little bit. Because that's, how many times have you, heard, have you heard someone say, my faith is private, it's between me and God. I don't need other people my faith is, is, is mine. That faith is totally foreign to anything in the pages of Scripture. And right here, John is telling us that that's impossible. John says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And that's, that's heavy. But then if you think of the converse, if, if that's true, the converse of that statement also must be true. If it's true that everyone who has been born of the Father or everyone who loves the Father uh, loves whoever has been born of Him, then the opposite is true. Whoever does not love the people who have been born of God, that person does not love the Father. That's, that's a heavy statement if you think about the implications that it has. But I, I think John intends for that to be a heavy statement. And then in verse 2, he goes further and underlines it a little bit. By this we know that we love the children of God 
when we love God and keep his, and obey His commandments. In that verse, he's equating loving God and or loving God and keeping His commandments with loving the people who have been born of God. So the question naturally comes to mind: Well, what commandments is he talking about? Well, in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And his response was, the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, all the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you can do those two things, if you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, you can keep the law. But then in John 13, he narrows it more when he's talking to his disciples. In John 13, uh, verses 34 and 35, Jesus tells his disciples, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. One another being disciples, loving disciples. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And then in verse 35, he says, By this, by your love for one another, the whole world will know that you are my disciples. And I think that's what John had in mind when he talks about keeping God's commandments because right before today's text, so we started in 5.1, in the last verse of chapter 4, John quotes that commandment. In 1 John 4.21, he says, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And by brother there, I, I want you to read and understand um, fellow church member, local church member, not just Christians as a whole, but specifically their one another, their, their fellow Christians. And so if we're missing his point, John underlines it one more time in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So he takes it a step further and says that not only should we love one another, with a Christ-like love, which we'll get to in a moment, but, but we should do it in a way that's not burdensome, in a way that is joyful. We should joyfully love one another if we have been born of God, if we love God. So then the question, the natural question to ask is, what does it mean to love? If you ask the culture, you can get a thousand different answers. Uh, three of them, if you just Google what is love, after the Hathaway song, you will get love is an emotion that keeps people bonded together and committed to one another. eHarmony would tell you that love is defined as an emotional attraction between individuals. <clears throat> one of the stars of the Hamilton um, musical, the Broadway show, uh, whenever he was uh, receiving his Tony Award, he defined love in my least favorite way. <laughs> but, but a common way nonetheless. He said, love is 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 love. And then do you know what everyone did? Standing ovation. That's like if you asked me, what is a chair? And I said, well, a chair is 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 a chair. <laughs> Thank you! We can go home. 
It, it means nothing. And so, so we need to know what does love mean if we're going to know how to, to understand this scripture. And thankfully, the Bible gives us Christians a definition for love. It gives us several definitions, and when we look at them all kind of together, we can see all of the pieces come together for a full picture of what it means to have a biblical love. So we're going to look at what Paul said love is, what Peter said love is, and then what John said love is. Beginning in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 13, I'm sorry, 13, 4 through 7, it's a section of scripture a lot of us have heard before. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Elsewhere, uh, the Apostle Peter defined love in 1 Peter 4, 8-11. through He said, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then finally, John. In, in the epistle we're reading today, uh, two chapters before, in 1 John 3, 16 through 18, John describes it. So we know John has this kind of love in mind when he says, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What we read in, in those three definitions of love that I would argue form a, a more holistic, singular definition of love is that love is far more than just a fluttery feeling or a, or a feeling of affinity toward a certain person. Love is something that has to be acted out. It has, it has to be in action or it's not love at all. It's just a feeling. And so then we bringing ourselves under the authority of Scripture, we have to ask ourselves, do we love one another the way that Scripture calls us to love one another? Not only calls us to, but says we must love one another. If we have been born of God, if we love God, then we will love whoever else has been born of God. I think, honestly, if we look at Paul's definition, me being a pastor at this church, I get the privilege of knowing a lot of you, and I, I think by and large, Harvest does really well with Paul's definition. I, I think, uh, by and large, we are patient with one another, we're kind, we don't envy, we're not boastful, uh, we're not arrogant or rude to one another, we don't always insist on our own way, we're not irritable or resentful toward one another, we don't rejoice in wrongdoing, but we, we rejoice in the truth. As, as a church, by and large, I think we 
we do well, we, I think, do exceedingly well at this. Um, I, I want to pause here, and we're not going to go too far down this trail, though, but I, I want to point something out in this definition. It says that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And there's so many people in our culture today who would, who would use the term love and say, if you loved me, then you would approve of this, or you would you know, affirm this decision of mine, or, or whatever it was. If someone ever uses the argument that you, you as a Christian should love me, and by love me, I mean approve of something that God does not approve of. What did we just read? Love, true love, biblical love, the, the love that we care most about does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. That's biblical love, along with other things. But, but we should never be, we should never feel forced to agree with something just so that we can make someone feel good if making them feel good requires us to rejoice in wrongdoing and deny the truth. That's not love. Not, not by a biblical standard. But then we move to, to Peter's definition of love. And Peter's definition of love was a lot more service-oriented. He started out by explaining how to love one another with hospitality without grumbling. And then using our gifts to serve one another. And when he's talking about gifts, it, it's easy for us to think, okay, the spiritual gifts that I have received of, of preaching or singing or um, service or hospitality or, or whatever those spiritual gifts might be. But I think he's referring to any gift, the gift of time, the, the gift that we have with one another, the gift of energy, the gift of money, the, all of the blessings that God has given us, Peter says to love one another is to use those, to spend those, to pour those things out for the good of one another so that in us, Christ can be glorified and, and through Christ, God will be glorified through our love for one another. And so that I ask, look at your life, look at, look at your relationships with other people in this church. And ask yourself, am I loving them with this biblical love, with more than just feelings? Am I pouring myself out in any way for the people of the church, for, for the building up of the body of the church? Am I loving in, in action? Some ways we see people do that. Stephen, uh, this morning, he loved us by leading us in worship. And I want you to understand how much he loved you by leading you in worship. Had he not done it, I would have. <laughs> and we would have all left early. <laughs> but every, every morning that someone leads us in worship, they're not just spending the time that we see them up here. They, they take the time to pick the songs. They take the time to rehearse. They get here early to do sound check. They're giving of themselves. They're loving us in that way. Other ways that people love us is by taking care of our our technology needs and the microphones and the streaming on, on social media and working the kiosk at the front desk to make sure that our kids get checked into the right rooms. And there's a, a rotation of people who come up here every Thursday or on a weekly rotation on Thursdays 
to clean our church so that whenever we all arrive here on Sunday morning, we can worship in a clean facility. There, there are people pouring themselves out for us, and we definitely don't need to forget the people who are loving us by serving in kids' D groups and in the kids' rooms during the service. As a parent who certainly benefits from that, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and as a parent who benefits from that, let me just say how huge of a ministry that is. That's not merely watching children. If you're in here and, and you serve in any of those capacities in the D group rooms or in just serving during the, the kids, uh, kids' time during the service hour, let me tell you how big of a role that is. You're shaping the way that my children view the church. You're, you're not just babysitting, but you're shaping the way that my four-year-old and my two-year-old understand the way that Christians pour into one another's lives, the way that Christians aren't just consumers at church, but, but they pour themselves out at church for the good of, of everyone else. You're shaping the way that they view God. And so much so that every night whenever we put our boys down, Brittany will put one down and I'll put the other one down, and we do the same routine every night. We'll read the Bible together, then we go to their separate beds, and uh, I will both we'll start with um, our Bible verses, then we'll uh, say our prayers, and then we'll sing a song, and then we'll say goodnight. And both of my boys, without fail, 100% of the time, after the Bible verses, before the prayer, they will say, Okay, Dad, who do we need to pray for today? Someone from our church. And let me tell you something. I have stopped naming who we need to pray for because I get vetoed every single time. Every single time. We just prayed for them. Or I don't know that person or whatever. So now they'll say, Dad, who do we need to pray for from our church? And I will now I just say, well, who do you want to pray for? And they'll think about it. And then they'll land on someone. And guess what? Nine times out of ten, it's someone who serves in the kids. The way that you love them and shape the way they view the church and God and everything else, they literally thank God for you every night. That's a major way to love our church. So there are all kinds of ways to, to love one another, but... but Pouring ourselves out, using our gifts for one another is, is a major way that we do it. But then in John, 1 John 3, 17 and 18, he gives us another command or, or way to understand the love, which is that we, if we see someone in need, we meet that need. Right? He said, who of you could say that you love someone if seeing that someone lacks the world's goods, if you have the world's good and you can meet that need and you close your heart to them, how can you say you love them? Again, I, I get to know a lot of people here and I, I get to understand how generous our church is, more so than, than most, of, most of us probably. And I can testify that here at our church, people will give the shirt off their back to someone else who's in need. But I ask, how good is that if that person doesn't know the needs? <laughs> can, can just coming to church on Sunday mornings, can that give us insight into one another's lives enough to know when there is a need that needs to be met? 
I would say no, because generally we show up at church and we put our best foot forward and we, we wear our nicest clothes and we put a smile on our face and we just go with it. We have, we have to invest in relationships with one another for us to even be able to understand when there is a need that we can meet. If we're not investing into relationships that are deeper than this surface level that can be done at church, then we're not going to be able to see when there is a need and therefore we will be unable to love in the way that God is calling us to love. And we talked about this in D group, but what's it called when you don't obey? Disobey. Sometimes we think of disobeying God as just actively committing sins, but if we're, if we're omitting <laughs> obedience, living in a neutral state, we, we are disobe disobeying passively. We have to be in a deep relationship with one another in order to know when there's a need that can be met. But then on the flip side of that, look around and, and ask yourself, if I were in need, would I come to these people first or would I go to my neighbor or my coworker or my friend? Y'all, the, the relationship that we should have with one another because of the common indwelling Holy Spirit that we all have and the common salvation that we all share should draw us to such a deep love for one another that we would want to dive into a deep relationship with one another, that we would want to come to these people first when I have a, a need. But unfortunately, I'm, I'm afraid that's not always the case. And so the question is, what do we do about that? Well, there's several avenues here at Harvest Church that, that you could step into to begin deepening those relationships. We've got D groups before Sunday service uh, where you can certainly begin to kind of get into those relational waters, get to know people a little bit better. Um, there's Rise Up Men's Bible Study before, um, before work on Monday mornings. We start at 6.30, we end at 7.30, and that's a, a good way to study the Word with other men uh, from our from our church and, and pray for one another and get to know one another. There's heart-to-heart -heart, uh, women's groups that meet throughout the week in different locations, different times, where they're doing something similar, studying the Word, encouraging one another, praying for one another. Life groups have started. They're, they're going to start in their fullness uh, in January, but we've got a couple of life groups started, which are a premier way to get to know people and deepen relationships with people in the church because it's in our homes. And it's studying scripture together, eating with one another in some cases, praying for one another. It's, the avenues are there, but they're only as good as, as they can be if you'll step into them. We, we need to have those relationships with one another so that we can love one another. But then the next two verses seem a little bit disjointed from the first three. It says, starting in verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that has overcome the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you're like me, you might think, well, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore, I have overcome this world. Bring it on, world. <laughs> good, good job, me. And I'm all for healthy confidence, but that's not what this scripture is talking about. The, the key to it is the second sentence in verse 4. 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So I ask you, what is special about our faith? The answer is nothing. Nothing. People throughout our society, think, think our immediate context, Hines, Rankin, Madison counties, people throughout our society have faith in all kinds of things that aren't Jesus, and, and they are not overcomers. They will not overcome this world by faith. Think about it. In, in the secular world, you have faith in ideas like trusting yourself, following your heart, trusting the market, vote for a specific party or a specific candidate. None of those strategies, faith in any of those things, they won't enable that person to overcome the world. They will come up empty. Similarly, throughout our society, immediate context, there's a lot of people who, they might not even realize this is true, but their faith is in pagan religions. They've so infiltrated our, our way of thinking and our way of life here that people have faith in things like, and all of this comes from Eastern religions, transcendental meditations, manifesting, astrology, crystals, doing certain kinds of chakra balancing and doing yogas and manipulating uh, energies so that I can become more full person or, or however they want to articulate it. Their faith is in something that is not Jesus. And I wish I could have total confidence that everyone in this room is totally free from all of those things that I just named. But I know that the, the truth is, there's probably some representation of some of these things in some of our lives. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I'm, I'm going to ask you, beg you, plead with you, if I just named anything that you dabble with in your life, get rid of it. That is, it's spiritually very dangerous. All of those things represent faith in something that is not Jesus. All of those things will come up empty. So what's different about our faith? Why does our faith represent victory? It's because our faith, the object of our faith, is the one who has overcome. The only one who has overcome this world, that is who our faith is in. Jesus said as much in John 16. He was talking to his disciples. He was about to be crucified. He said, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. One commentator uh, described what it means for Jesus to have overcome the world. He said, Jesus has overcome the world by overcoming the world's prince, Satan. He had overcome the world by rejecting the world's value judgments. He had overcome by a perfect willingness to endure the world, to endure the worst the world could bring upon him without retreating from one single word of his holy teachings. He had overcome by steadfast refusal to yield to the world's temptations of lust and pride. He had overcome the world by living a life of total innocence and perfection, while at the same time, a life of total power, authority, and effectiveness. He had indeed overcome the world. 
Friends, Romans 6 says that through faith in Jesus, through faith in the gospel, we are united with Christ. We become one with Christ through faith. So the reason the victory is ours and that victory is our faith is because through faith, we become one with the one who overcame. And so God looks at us and he sees us just as he sees Jesus, which means we are we can't be separated from Jesus. We cannot be separated from the love of Christ. Romans 8 calls us uh, uh, overcomers. We have overcome death and, and tribulations and trials and everything else that nothing can separate us from the love of God because we are overcomers in Christ. So I ask, what did we do to become overcomers? Nothing. Jesus did everything. We have faith in Jesus and by virtue of that faith, we become overcomers too. And so how does that relate to the first three verses about loving one another? Well, I think the link is found where he says, and his commandments at the end of verse 3 in First John, and his commandments are not burdensome. How can self-sacrificing, self-pouring out, pouring out of oneself for other people not be burdensome? That is the definition of burdensome, is self-sacrifice. Well, the way that it's not burdensome is we realize all that we have been given in Christ. And that we set our minds and we set our affections on those things instead of the things of this world. And then pouring out the things of this world from our lives becomes a lot easier because that's not what we're here for. John wants us to focus on the eternal so that we can love one another the way that God calls us to love one another. And so as we begin to land the plane, and we're going to land it quickly this morning, I ask, are you loving your one another? And your one another is in this room. These, these people, the church of Harvest, Harvest Church, do you love others with biblical love? Or have you loved others with a worldly love. It's relegated more to feelings. If you can look at your life and, and see that it's been more relegated toward feelings than, than an active love, I would, I would plead with you to repent and, and to find ways to love one another the way that God calls us to love one another. Because as we saw last week in, in 1 John 4, that's the way that the world gets to see God in us, is by our love for one another. So what are the two big takeaways for today? Well, one of them is that. Love one another and, and, and do it joyfully. But two, how do we do that? We do it by focusing on the gift that we've received from Jesus, from God, by grace through faith alone. We did not overcome this world, and nothing we can do could ever overcome this world. However, the one who did overcome this world did it so that those of us who would believe in him, put our faith in him, we could share in his victory. Y'all, that means our eternity is just as secure as Jesus' eternity. Think about that. There is no greater gift than that. No greater mercy that God could show you other than to say, put your faith in the Son that I sent 
and your eternity will be just as secure as his. So as we leave here today, I want us to focus on that. I, I, I pray that we will focus on all that we have been given from Jesus, by, by God, through Jesus, so that we can see, hey, there's, there's ways that I can love people that I haven't been loving people. There's one way, one example, one suggestion, a plea that I will give us. The best way that I think we can begin to become a culture of a church that loves one another is by doing what Peter said and showing hospitality to one another. What is hospitality? It's having people into our homes. The people you invite into your homes, they get to see you in a way that none of the rest of the world gets to see you. Your walls come down. You're totally vulnerable. You have asked people into the most private place in your life. And if we can't do that with one another, who can we do that with? We won't have the relationships with one another that allow us and enable us to love one another the way that Jesus calls us to love one another if we're not in one another's lives, and that means in one another's homes. And so the challenge I would give us is that we all realize we have 30 meals a month. Roughly 30 times a month we're going to eat at our house. Choose one meal of each month to invite someone from Harvest into your house to share that meal with you. Just one. One out of 30. To share that meal with you, to get to know one another. I would, I would encourage it to be people who you feel a little awkward inviting over because you don't really know them that well. And get to know one another over a meal, over the table. Pour yourself out for the good of the body. I think you'll be amazed at how much it does for our church and for your life in particular. So as we leave here today, my encouragement is that we leave here focused on the gifts that we have received from Jesus through faith, by God's grace, so that we can leave here in a way that enables us to love one another with a love that is biblical. Let's pray. Father God, you are so gracious to us. You have, um, you've been patient with us. You have been uh, long-suffering with us before we came to faith and after. Uh, God, you have uh, been gentle and kind when we don't deserve it. God, I pray that you would allow our lives uh, to reflect, God, you, uh, the way that we live with one another, the way that we love one another. Let it be a reflection of, of who you are and how you have been to us. God, I pray that you would, um, if there's anyone in here who hasn't put their faith in you, hasn't received that gift. God, I pray that in this moment, your spirit would be stirring in them, God, that they would know that this is the moment, this is the time to step in, uh, in faith, into a relationship with you, to receive the love that you have shown them, uh, God, so that they can be partakers of, of the love, both here, um, in this room, in this church, and for all eternity, God. I pray that you would make, make your love known through Harvest Church, so that your name can be glorified uh, in the world around us. God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.